I'm stopping the intro because we're so cram-packed this show. We have two New York Times number one best-selling authors, Doug Preston and Lincoln Child. They are also working together on incredible fiction novels for us to enjoy this weekend. I hope you all have a great long weekend. We're going to take Monday off. I hope you do too. But before that, let's talk with uh, some great authors and learn how they did it. I'm excited to welcome Douglas Preston. He has written 36 books, both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, 29 of them have been New York Times bestsellers. My God, what a uh, career. 29 New York Times bestsellers. And several have reached number one. He was editor at the American Museum of Natural History in New York and taught nonfiction writing at Princeton. His first movie his first novel, Relic, was made into a movie with Emily Mortimer, I think, who is one of the women I have always just thought was absolutely gorgeous. I could go on and on, but we need to go ahead and get him out and talk. Doug, welcome. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks. It's good to be on the show. Uh, excited to learn from you. So let's start off with the entrepreneurship. How did you sell your first book? Well, you know, that's that's linked to how I met Lincoln Child and how we started our writing partnership. I uh, My first job out of college was as an editor for the Museum of Natural History in New York. So I worked in their, their magazine and I did little, I was a very low-level editor, nothing important. But uh, one of the things I did was I wrote a little column about the museum and its history for their magazine and one day i got a call from a person who identified himself as a senior editor at saint martin's press and he'd been reading my column and wondered if i wanted to write a book about the museum and would i care to have lunch with him at the russian tea room uh well, there's an invitation you go there whenever you get a chance oh yeah you know i actually had to rush to the Salvation Army and buy a jacket so I could get into the Russian <laughs> team. Um, but when I arrived, I was looking around for this gray-haired, distinguished editor I'd spoken to. Instead, there's this kid, younger than I was, like waving at me from this table. And that was Lincoln Child. And he was this up-and-coming editor at St. Martin's Press, a brilliant editor uh, who had advanced very rapidly. And he proposed that I write this nonfiction book about the museum. And I said I would. I was very happy with that. Actually, I've been thinking about doing that already. So I wrote the book. It was published, thanks to Lincoln. And he was my editor. And then I gave Lincoln a tour of the museum. Uh, late at night, I thought it'd be kind of fun to, to give him a tour after hours when the museum was closed. And it was really, you know, we went into the dinosaur halls, you know, they, they turn off the lights. Everything's dark except for the emergency lighting. They it's make so movies about this, Doug. Oh, yeah. And, and Lincoln turned to me. We're in the hall of, of Cretaceous dinosaurs. I'll never forget this. He turned to me and he said, Doug, 
this is the scariest damn building in the world. We've got to write a thriller set in this building. <laughs> and I uh, said, well, Lincoln, I, I don't know how to write a thriller. I, I, I sort of saw myself as a nonfiction writer. And he said, well, I do. He said, I've read so many bad manuscripts that I know exactly what not to do. <laughs> so, so that's how we wrote Relic together. And we had a lot of fun doing that. And it turned out to be a great success. And were you happy with the movie? With my uh, soon-to-be girlfriend, Emily Mortimer? Well, let me see. Uh, I'll tell you, when, I, when we signed our contract, which was like 150 pages, I didn't read it. I just said, you know, give me the money. Send me the check. <laughs> like, when the movie came out, our agent called us up and said, have you read paragraph 659 of your contract? And I said, no. Um, tell me about it. What does it say? He said, well, it says, if you criticize the movie, even in casual conversation, you will be liable not only for returning the money that you were paid, but you'll be liable up to the cost of making the movie, which is $50 million. So, to answer your question, oh, we love the movie. <laughs> well said, Doug. Well said. But you are going to introduce me to Emily, correct? Oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, actually, I, it was fun. I had a chance to go out to the Paramount lot and watch them filming the movie. I met all the stars. It was really fun. We, we had a, it was very interesting. Um, and I never seen anything like that before. They built these gorgeous sets on these sound stages and they were so perfect. And when I was standing in the set, looking around, I, I would have thought I was in a museum. I never would have guessed I was on a sound stage and all the smell of chemicals and everything that they use to put together the, the sets smell just like the chemicals in a museum. <laughs> so it was pretty amazing. Well, that would be a thrill to be watching your movie be made. Doug, teach a little class for us for a few minutes. Give us some advice. Let's go through the steps, please. And give us some advice. Uh, topic selection for fiction. Uh, how do you come up with a sexy idea for a piece of fiction? Now, that's a really good idea and a, a, a really good question. And it's very difficult to answer that question because the best ideas seem to come out of nowhere. Um, but I will say this, reading and digesting information and gathering information from all kinds of unusual sources is the way to go. I mean, you know, there are a lot of good ideas in the New York Times or, or, or the Wall Street Journal, but guess what? Everyone else is reading those ideas. You want to read obscure scientific journals, medical journals, I mean, because for the kind of stuff that we do. Uh, I read Scientific American. I read New Scientist. I read, you know, Science and Nature magazine. Looking for weird discoveries that then will produce a book. For example, um, this novel that, we're, that we just published called Dead Mountain, which was published on August 22nd, originated in a real story about nine cross-country skiers 
who died under very bizarre circumstances in the Ural Mountains in the old Soviet Union in 1959. And I did a story about that for the New Yorker magazine. I write nonfiction for the New Yorker. And it was Lincoln who read my story and he said, Doug, this story is incredible. We could, we should turn this into a novel. We can move the setting to the United States, move it to New Mexico, mountains of New Mexico. And that's where we got the idea for Dead Mountain. And of course, we changed everything around and we came up with our own solution to the mystery. But so that's an example of, of a really offbeat subject becoming a novel. How do you actually write 400 pages? What's your process? And give me some suggestions, the listeners' suggestions on developing the writing habit. It really takes discipline. It's like exercise. You know, it's hard. Your exercise is hard to do, right? And you don't want to do it. And when you're doing it, it's painful. But when you're done with it, you feel so good. And writing's the same way. It's you don't want to do it. You put it off. And when you're doing it, it's very difficult. Sometimes you're in despair. But if you stick with it, then when you're done, you feel really good. But this is the kind of thing you have to do every day, day in and day out for a year. I mean, our publisher gives us a contract and they want the book in a year. And if we don't work every single day or almost every day, days, you know, a work week, we're not going to get that book done. And we don't get paid until the, the manuscript's delivered. So it's really important to work every day. I, there are a couple of other things that I'll say. It's really important to let your loved ones know that your working time, your writing time is sacred. I mean, if you were a doctor, they wouldn't show up in the middle of an of your operation and ask you questions. Or if you were an attorney, they wouldn't be calling you in your office asking what's for dinner. And the same is true with writing. You have to tell your loved ones and everyone else, this is my sacred writing time. I'm not to be disturbed. And they have to understand that it's just as important as a doctor, as a surgeon in surgery or a lawyer doing his thing, or like you, a radio um, personality on the air. can't be interrupted. That's very important. And um, it's really important, I think, to do it every day, uh, preferably seven days a week, like pretty much Lincoln and I work seven days a week. When we take time off, it's usually like a chunk of time, a week or two. But it's a lot like playing the piano or the violin. You know, a violinist has to practice every day if they want to go to Carnegie Hall. If you're going to be a writer, you got to write every day even on Saturday and Sunday. And I usually do that on Saturday and Sunday morning. I'll work. So does Lincoln. Um, So yeah, discipline, cooperation with your friends and your loved ones, and relentless pursuit of that 400-page novel. How do you sell it? Good question. The, uh, there, there are two ways now to sell a book. Um, you know, it's really changed recently. A self-publishing used to be kind of embarrassing. Oh, I self-published a book and, you know, and maybe your mother and your cousins bought it and that's it. But now there are a lot of authors who are having huge success 
self-publishing books. People like Colleen Hoover, um, you know, they're really doing well with this. And if you have a large social media following um, and you're on TikTok, I'm not on TikTok, but if you're on TikTok, you've got a big following, you can actually successfully self-publish a book with the Amazon self-publishing program, the you know, Kindle program or others you can do it with. Um, traditionally, you need to find an agent to get a, a novel published, which means first selling it to an agent. And you do that by going online, um, go to Writer's Digest website, go to the Authors Guild website, uh, read Jane Friedman, educate yourself on how to find an agent. Uh, you can find lists of young agents who are hungry, who are looking for authors. Uh, you look at what kind of authors they represent, what kind of novels they like, and then you follow their instructions on how to submit to them. Some just want a cover letter, some want the first chapter, some want the whole book. Uh, so you, you follow those instructions and you find an agent, and then your agent is the one who has all the lunch partners, that knows the people in publishing, and he then he or she will then sell your book to a publisher. Doug, can I tell you uh, my getting published story real fast, just to, as a joke for you to laugh at? Well, I'd love to hear it. So uh, I've sold one one hundred million thousandth of the books you've had, right? And I'm not a writer. I don't consider myself a writer. But I did have a friend who said we should try to get this uh, published, and we sent one one page letter to McGraw Hill. And within a week they said, yes. And we had a signed contract with them in under a week, uh, for my first book school for startups, which this show is named after. Well, now that is an amazing story because what you just described almost never happens. And uh, I, I can guess two things about that. First of all, the School for Startups is a really great title, a really great title. It's a great idea. And I bet you the letter you wrote was awesome. And it just happened to land on the right desk because most publishers, McGraw-Hill included, really don't look at things that don't come through agents already because there's so many people out there trying to sell books that they just think, oh, God, you know, we, if we tried to go through the slush pile, we'd never get through it. So they kind of let the agents do that. So what you accomplished is absolutely extraordinary, and I congratulate you. Let me tell you, it's funny that you say you like the name so much. The name we had was The Entrepreneur School, and our thesis was, is, Entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, and we can defend that. And that was bold at the top in like 14 font, and then there was three or four paragraphs. And they said they bought the thesis, wanted to see the defense of that thesis. And then they said, we hate the name Entrepreneur School. That Friday, Doug, I got a letter from an attorney cease and desist saying entrepreneur magazine is going to sue you if you continue to call yourself the entrepreneur school and so you better change your name right now and mcgraw hill called and said we really like school for startups Are you okay to change it to that we're like 
Sure, we're okay with that. Thanks for the suggestion. That's how we got named. Well, that's good. Well, it's 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 a really good name. Um, I think the Entrepreneur Magazine threatening to sue you is pretty is pretty awful. I mean, you can't trademark a, a word, an English word like entrepreneur. But they anyway, also trademark the word cure, not Entrepreneur Magazine. The reason I bring up, they made a movie about this called Trademark Wars about normal American words that are trademarked by organizations. The uh, Glasser uh, organization for breast cancer owns the trademark on cure and spends a tremendous amount of their budget, supposedly, on defending cure, even going after the cure Alzheimer's walk in the neighborhood type people. Well, that's that's pretty awful. I mean, who, what, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to do good in this world, or just bring more misery and and, and make more money for themselves? I mean, you know, I'm, you know, as as an author, I love our English language, our beautiful English language. The idea that someone can trademark a common word in the language is a total anathema. And I, I'm surprised that the courts even allow it. I'm not an attorney, but I just don't think that should be allowed. Supposedly, there's no way to undo it once it's done. And according to the movie, again, Trademark Wars, and I haven't looked for it recently, but I've seen it five, ten years ago. It'd have to be 12 years ago that I saw it. Uh, there was a guy in California sentenced to life in prison who sent off trademark applications as his hobby and would put a special mark on them. And supposedly one of his relatives worked in the office that they opened the, the envelopes. And if she saw the mark, she would put it in a special pile and he got crazy trademarks, including the word entrepreneur and the word cure and a bunch of others. Sounds well, like someone should write a book on that. Anyway, Doug, let's go back to your story. Promote. How do you promote a book with excellence? What are the best practices on actually getting the damn thing sold at the airport? Well, you know, the a lot of it is social media. I mean, you can't escape it. Uh, you know, and I know a lot of people don't like it, but if you're an author, you just got to do it. I mean, I've got a Facebook page with a hundred thousand people. I got Instagram. I don't do tit Twitter, but um, you know. Do you do it or do you outsource? Well, I do it myself because the, the few times I've outsourced it, I haven't liked what, what's, what it's, what's been produced. It's sort of, if you outsource it, all you get is sort of generic promotional stuff. I really want to connect with my readership and really personally connect with them. And the way to do that really is to do it myself. But the best thing that I did was advice that um, uh, Lee Child gave me, actually. You know, he's a writer, and I've known him for many years, a wonderful guy and a very, uh, really wonderful writer. He said, start your own newsletter. See, you control it yourself. You don't have Facebook controlling it with an algorithm. And just instead of, you know, promoting your books on the newsletter, give your readers something really interesting to read, something fun. So Lincoln and I did that, and we now have 150,000 subscribers, and we we give it's free. 
We only email them once a month because you know what it's like when you sign up for a newsletter and you start getting one every single day. It's like, oh my God, you know, unsubscribe right away. So we only send, and it's, whenever we do send out the newsletter, it's something really fun. It's a, it's an interview with one of our characters or a short story that we write that we give out free to our readers or other weird things, you know, giveaways. An uh, interview with one of your fictional characters? Yeah, we, we've done That's that. That's cool. Several- I love that idea, Doug. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, we, we love that. I mean, they're, to us, those characters are real people. Um, I mean, our character Pendergast, our famous character, he's more real to me than than many real people I know. Um, so Are you better very- friends with him than with some of your real friends? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, All know. right, moving on to the next topic. How do you get famous? So you've already sold a thousand books. You've mastered promotion at some level. How do you take it to the next level and become number one New York Times bestseller and actually reach fame? Did you sell your soul? Yes, I signed a contract with the devil. Um, I, uh, you know, that's a, I had an editor many, many years ago. I was complaining about a book that I wrote that failed. And he said, Doug, it's not a book. It's a career. And that's my advice to writers is, you know, keep going. Just keep going. You're gonna. You might have a book that fails. You might have a book that gets bad reviews. Just make sure you keep going, because eventually you're going to gain a readership if you're any good. And once you gain a readership, you build on that readership. You keep giving them a book a year if you can. Um, it's hard to write a book a year when you start out because it really takes time. I, I think it took four years for the first book, but. Keep those books coming, as long as they're good books, and gradually build up your readership. That's the way it's done. How do you deal with a partner? Before that, how do you find a writing partner? Well, Lincoln was such such an accident. I mean, I do write books on my own. He writes books on his own. Um, But we love working together because... It's writing such a lonely profession, and and it's so hard when you get stuck to come up with ideas and to try to figure your way out of a out of a corner. But when you have a writing partner, you can talk to him, you can work out problems very quickly, uh, you can complain to him about people. You, you know, it's it's a much more. And if Lincoln says to me, Doug, you know this this thing you've written isn't very good even though I might not like to hear that and get really pissed off at him, I got to trust him because that's why I have a writing partner and he's right. And when I say the same thing to him, I'm right. Um, and that's how it works. So, so yeah, I, I enjoy working with him. I really do. All right. You gave us a little bit about dead mountain. Do it again. Give us the the plot, whatever you're allowed to let us know about the storyline. Tell us on reading this book this weekend. Well, it okay, so it, it opens up with, we have two characters, an FBI agent who's a young FBI agent just starting with the Albuquerque, New Mexico field office, and an archaeologist who works for the Santa Fe Institute of Archaeology, and they team up on cases. So these two drunken frat kids are driving around in the mountains in November, 
skid off the road and crash their Jeep. And it starts to snow on them. And they're, they're really, they're drunk and they've been smoking you know, weed. So they, they look for shelter and they find a cave. Which one of you did the research on that, Doug? I, I did the research on this opening. No, I meant they smoking find- the weed. Oh, <laughs> you know, that's another thing I'd advise. Uh, just shut up. Don't answer that question. Keep going. Keep yeah. going. Ignore me. As my wife would say, just tell him to shut up. So keep going. No, no, I, um, but uh, no, I think that, yeah. So anyway, so they, they go into this cave and what do they find? But a prehistoric Indian burial. And so the FBI is called in because they don't know that it's a prehistoric Indian burial. All they know is, is, is that it's a skeleton and they, the FBI agent calls in the archaeologist. She comes in and says, oh, this is prehistoric. This is not a murder victim. But in the back of the cave, they find uh, a body that's only 15 years old that is a suicide. And they think, this is really bizarre. And then they find another body which is killed this, by the suicide. So in other words, it's a murder-suicide that took place 15 years ago in the back of this cave. And that's where the, the case begins. And they realize that these two bodies are from a group of hikers who were hiking in the mountains in, in the wintertime, who all vanished under bizarre circumstances. And here they found two of the bodies, and that opens up this FBI case, and there's an archaeological element to it, and that's how the novel begins. Wow. And then why is the FBI, I mean, how does this become, well, I guess there's lots of reasons that would be investigated by the, by the FBI, but is it like a, a cabal trying to take down America or I, what genre do we head off into though? After that, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, well, it's a, it's a thriller genre. Well, of course, it but does, you know, is it, it doesn't, um, politics, it doesn't involve- is it historical based? Where does it go? I'd say it's historical based. Okay. Um, the action takes place near, very near uh, where the nation's largest stockpile of nuclear weapons is located. This is true. In the Manzano Mountains of New Mexico is are the largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the world, um, run by the Air Force. And these are weapons that are meant to reload our arsenal during a nuclear war. Um, now, I, the idea of reloading a nuclear our nuclear arsenal is a little bit weird if you think about it, because who knows what would be left after we've used up all our first round. But we've got thousands and thousands of extremely powerful nuclear weapons stored in the mountains. And there's also an old bunker in there that was built for President Truman uh, during the very early part of the atomic age, that, where the White House was going to move if there was an atomic war. And those bunkers were abandoned. Because the United States, after the Russians tested the Tsar Bomba, which is the largest H-bomb ever tested, the Americans realized that that bomb would, would breach this, this uh, uh, bunker. So they abandoned it. So all this is woven into the fabric of the story. Going back to the Manhattan Project, going back to the, uh, the development of the H-bomb, the Kirtland Air Force Base was actually part of the Manhattan Project, uh, not a well-known part. And uh, so there's a lot of history in there. So I'd say it's a historical, it's a thriller that takes place in the present day, but whose roots 
extend back to the uh, his, extend back to the development of the atomic bomb. Amazing, Doug. Great stuff. Great interview. How do we find out more? Get stuff about you. Find out. How do we get on the newsletter and get well, a copy? Well, of the you, book? Can to, you can go to our website at www.prestonchild.com. Sign up for the newsletter. You can check out our Facebook page. Sign up for the newsletter from that. Um, you know, you can Google our names. We're all over the internet. Um, all kinds of crazy stuff being written about us. Some true, some not. Anyway, um, so we're out there. We're not hard to find. All right. Fantastic. Doug Preston, thank you so much for being with us. Great, great uh, career. And thank you for sharing and giving us the lowdown. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you, Jim. I really enjoyed it. And we will be right back. We are back. And again, thank you so much for being with us. And again, we're doing something really weird this episode, something that we've never done. We're having two guests that are related. We've done that before, but we've never had two co-authors, two fiction giants who work together, coming together to talk about their book, but also separately their lives, their careers, and they're telling funny stories about each other. Lincoln, you're sort of like Spielberg and Lucas when they came together to do uh, the first Indiana Jones. So we've already spoken with uh, Doug, and now we're going to have Lincoln Child, the co-author. He has also been very successful with seven thrillers of his own, the Jeremy Logan series. And I didn't point this out earlier, but one of he and Doug's books has been selected by an NPR poll as one of the 100 greatest thrillers ever written. Lincoln, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good, Jim. So how are you? I'm very well. So do you want to be Spielberg or Lucas? Um, I think I'd rather be Lucas at this point. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so... We I, I should I should preface this by saying that whatever Doug said about our success or about me is probably a lie, and I will set it all all straight now. Okay. Well, he did tell us that he writes about ninety five percent of the books, and the other twenty percent is him editing your stuff out. Is that true? Yes, that's. Uh, <laughs> like george harrison saying that he wrote the entire Lennon mccartney songbook um himself uh yes by the same level of truth well what it reveals though lincoln is that and he did tell us this you work well together you enjoy working together you're friendly you have a great relationship uh it sounds like you've discovered utopia <laughs> Well, he, those were all true. Everything, everything you just pointed out, it took us a while to reach that, utop that utopia. And there were, there were crevasses and, um, you know, long deserts along the way. But from the very beginning, you know, Doug and I started out as me being the editor and he being the author of a nonfiction book about the museum of natural history where he worked. And, from that arrangement, business arrangement, we became friends. And that just developed into a sort of a very 
self-indulgent idea of writing a thriller together. Now, Doug had very grandiose plans of becoming the next um, John McPhee or, you know, a nature writer of that ilk, and he moved off to San, uh, Santa Fe. Um, and I was working in a different field, and so we really did not know if this career would work or not. And certainly, as a, as a solo career, because, you know, very few writers, unfortunately, make enough off the sweat of their brow writing to make a go of it as a, as as a income. Um, but after a long time, we we got the book placed by our our long suffering agent at the time, and it took us a year and a half to get the book into the shape that the uh, uh, the publisher wanted, uh, and that became relic. And that was also truly the start of our our career as joint authors because up till then it was a pipe dream. You know, it was it was fun, but clearly the fact it took so long to write shows that it was not necessarily our first priority at all times. Just because I'd been an editor so long and I knew the percentage of books that came in as manuscripts. And they came out the other door as finished, finished, published books. Um, but I'll see. I can, I'll see. I can speed this up here. Um, after that, you know, we we had our struggles from time to time in trying to balance uh, who did what. You know, it's true that at first Doug did most of the writing, and I did most of the plotting. Um, and it's also true that, that Doug had a solo career, nonfiction. Primarily, he had to balance with our career. Um, but, you know, we both, from the very beginning, respected each other a great deal. Um, and, and that is the one critical thing. If you're going to have this very unusual relationship, especially with fiction, you know, um, you have to respect the other person because, and you have to have a hard skin because when they come in and say, this chapter is all wrong. And, and Doug is really good at, at telling you at great length what's wrong with your chapter. You know, Link, this chapter is so pathetic. It really is like a melodrama. Okay, Doug. It's really melodramatic. I mean, you can't believe how melodramatic it is. Okay, Doug. Link, I, just, I have to say, shut up! <laughs> um, but you have to uh, just, you know, check your ego at the door and realize that you have to respect this person enough so that, and that he has objectivity on this on stuff that you don't have. So in the interview I just had with Doug, I was telling him some of the, the stories Lincoln and one of the stories I told and you can hear when you listen to the interview is that I was very fortunately published by McGraw Hill. And when it came to the editing stage, they, I think they prepared for war almost. And they sent the <laughs> edits and said, here's the edits. What are you, what are your thoughts? And you know, can you get it back to us in two weeks? And, and I, and I wrote replied immediately a hundred percent accepted. I, I, I'm a moron here. I'm not a writer. I know that, uh, I can't be better than your editor. 
well, how is someone become a good editor? Is that just someone? I don't understand how, for example, Doug was bragging about your editing career and how you were on the rocket ship in your career was doing amazingly well as an editor. How do you know who's a good editor and who should get promoted and who shouldn't? Uh, it seems to me like you're grading how well I am at writing or grading English. It's pretty subjective. Why is Jackie Onassis a great editor? I never understood that. Explain the whole thing to me. Do you understand where I'm coming from? And would you like it if the guy wrote back simply saying accepted? You mean um, someone that you were editing, someone you were working with? Someone, yeah. I mean, who accepted accepted my my revisions? You mean? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I would I would love it because it, it meant that things were easier for me and that and that they hopefully they agreed with me rather than just you know what I said yes no matter what and and I I've been there too you know I know what that's like um, as for what makes a great editor um, I'm going to reserve judgment on Jackie Onassis because sometimes being a celebrity is all you need to be a great editor. Um, uh, there are many, you know, it's a really, really difficult and a, and a very good question, too, because, and and I have to preface this by saying my knowledge is, is from the uh, the 80s. I was, uh, I worked for about 10 years in publishing until just before 1990. Um, so this may have changed a little bit, but the main process is the same, I think. Um Usually you have to work your way up like in a law firm. First, you're an assistant, which is basically the secretary to the uh, editor that you work for. Then you're an assistant editor and then an associate editor. And then you start going out and having lunches with agents and um, acquiring books of your own. And if you're lucky, there's no magic wand or or there's no like... um, uh, initiation process. It's just it it varies from person to person. You become a, a made editor, so to speak. Um, and uh, what makes a good editor is maybe you're a Maxwell Perkins type, you know, who who worked for with F. Scott Fitzgerald, and um, can really zero in on what's wrong with the book. Maybe you're uh, what they used to call a belly editor who only goes out at lunch and meets agents and acquires a ton of books and then his assistants do all the work. I'm not saying that's common. It's probably very uncommon. Or maybe you're somebody who just happens to get the next Michael Crichton and you ride the coattails all the way. Um, but I think, uh, and, and I can't speak for nonfiction because most of my stuff was fiction, but I think, what a, in my opinion, but a great editor or a good editor, anyway, does is they have to be able to well, first they they know the genre they're working in. You know, it wouldn't do me any good to to uh, um, edit books on you know underwater basket weaving because I know nothing about it. Um, but you know, if, if it's if it's a thriller, if it's a historical novel, um, there are certain things that always have to be the same. Um, you know, you, there's, there, there are acts to a book, a one, two, and three. If you bring a gun on the first act, you have to blow, shoot it off in the third act. You have to see the, uh, 
the heroine or the hero, you know, the protagonist triumph, and it has to uh, be believable, incredible, and hold your your interest. And so, basically, we, what it comes down to is um, my my boss and uh, the ex president of St. Martin's Press, who, to his um, great, uh, uh, you know. Um, uh, I can only say the greatest things about him. Too. You know, he he was an editor as well as a publisher, so it wasn't only money for him. It was also the craft of editing. He said that uh, a reader will take a book and read it and put it on and say, "That eh, was pretty good." You know, eh, not so great, but I enjoyed it. An editor will put it on and say, "That was okay," but A, B, C, D, E, F. Will make it better, and so you have to be able to identify what's wrong with it. And it's the same as, uh, in a way, as a, a scriptwriter. You know, um, taking a taking a book can hone it for a movie. Um, you you find out what the what the reader wants because you feel it yourself, um, and that, that doesn't mean it has to be your favorite kind of book. I mean, you could come like, across a Thomas Pynchon or a or a J.D. Salinger, or an unusual writer, and still have enough um, uh, uh, ability to to shift, you know, change your colors, and see the the book from the point of view of that kind of reader. I, I hope that makes sense because there's really no one answer to that question. I like that. I like that answer. I like anything where there's not one answer. So Lincoln, how do you get, uh, your ideas? You're the plot man. You said, how do you create, how do you, uh, revive it when the ideas are not coming? Where's your creativity come from? Uh, good question. Another good question. I, 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 um, want to say up front that I, I was, the plot man in the sense that I wrote out the outlines for the chapters we'd agreed on and Doug wrote them in the early days, but Doug eventually got wise and said, what the hell you should be writing a lot more chapters <laughs> than I am, you know? And, um, and, and I wrote my fair share for, for the earliest books, but you know, as time went on, as time went on, we began to assign, um, sequences of chapters you know we don't it isn't like here is one i write two three four ping like ping pong because that would be terribly disruptive to the reader they may not know why but they would sense a shift you know between the I chapters was ask so what, about that and there's new computer programs that test whether shakespeare wrote shakespeare or not so certainly they would test you yeah and and i i'm very I'm very dubious about those programs. I mean, I've like everybody else. I've written poetry and limericks using using them, um, and they're they're hysterical. Uh, and who knows what they they have behind the scenes that they're not letting us play with. And someday I'm sure they can write like like us, but I don't think they're there yet. There's, uh, but anyway, that that we could talk about that for hours. But um, uh. What what's what happens now is that we take a sequence, like I'll take the sequence of three people escaping from a a castle, you know, 
uh, heavily guarded castle. And Doug will take the sequence of somebody preparing a, a chemical that will blow the front door. And, you know, these our party is split into two groups. And so that way we can each write a series of chapters involving the same characters without having to talk to each other about all the time and interrupting them. Or also sometimes we, we write the chapters of our favorite characters. Um, you know, we each have favorite characters and we tend to write those chapters or else we write chapters that we, we agree that we are good at. Uh, Doug is very good at the action scenes. I'm better at the, uh, I think, well, I'm not saying I'm better, but I, I shine at the, uh, scenes of description or conversation or, um, uh, you know, you know, um, just character building scenes. Um, who writes and, the sex scenes? <laughs> uh, well, we, we, our, Doug wrote a couple and they were so bad that I, um, that I wrote one and, um, I didn't, I wrote one or two and I didn't enjoy it. And the last one I wrote, it was really, really difficult. And it was many books ago. Um, are you married Lincoln? Yes, I am. Does your spouse read the sex scenes and just laugh their head off? <laughs> She says, you wish, you know, <laughs> no. no, she does not say that, but yes, yeah, she does read them. Um, but so the last one was really uncomfortable because I, I imagine everybody wondering, gee, is this what this guy thinks is, is erotic or gee, what a, what a perv or gee, what, this is so boring or whatever. So we just, we just avoid them, you know, um, uh, they're usually gratuitous, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like movies these days there's a lot less nudity because in the 70s when it became legal basically it would be a narrated film if you didn't have a couple of gratuitous nude scenes but you don't need that anymore um to tell a story and um that's how i feel and of course we have certain jokes about it like people are always asking us about that and we used to say that we don't have enough time to do the field research for the sex scenes, you know, <laughs> um, but now what we tend to say is when people ask us what we're like, um, Doug says, well, we're like an old married couple, you know, well, we bicker and we fuss and quarrel. And then I say, and the sex is terrible. So, and that's as much as we, and, and that's a joke, by the way, we're not a couple, old couple. Um, but so anyway, we, we, we struggled through them and didn't never, we ever did them well. And now we've, we've let them to our reader's imagination, which is probably where they belong. Yes. I don't know why an FBI thriller needs a sex scene. Uh, well, some, some authors will tell you that every, every book needs X amount of violence, X amount of sex, X amount of this. And just like some authors, not that I'm going to name them tend to write the same book over and over again. Oh my um, gosh. Have you ever read a Clive Cussler book? Clive was a, a very good friend of mine and yes, I have. And yes, I know what you mean. And I'm not going to name anybody whose last name you might be familiar with talking to me, but, um, there are some people who, who write very similar stories and they're very well written, but, 
it's the same. I mean, you know, you just plug in different variables. And the funny thing is readers love that. Um, I guess it's, it's comforting, you know, uh, it's like watching a, a Lone Ranger episode and knowing that the Lone Ranger is not going to get shot in the face at the, at the end, you know, um, I, I can't understand that, but, um, you know, I'm never, I'm the last one to judge any reader's taste because we were very careful to listen to our readers, both in their emails and in, um, uh, when we see them face to face and, um, you know, they're the ones we learn from, you know, I really like this scene, that scene. I love this character. You know, you have to do this. You What's have to the best do that. advice you know, you've ever gotten from a reader. I, you know what? That's a very hard question. Um, because what I thought was the best advice turned out to be some of the worst advice. We were told over and over and over again to kill off a certain major character. This guy's boring. We hate him. You know, you should get rid of him. And we felt offended because we sort of thought we were him. You know, we wrote our own, gave him our own best lines. It was Bill Smithback was his name. And so finally we killed him off. And we, and to make sure people knew it was no joke, we had an autopsy performed. Um, and ever since, people have complained to us, you know. Um, but then readers will always complain. Uh, um, you know, uh, for example, um, the, the biggest complaint we get is that a dog died in your book. I'm never going to read another one of your books. Um, and they, they don't think about the 65 people who died when some <laughs> building collapsed on them or some murderer got, got them or something, you know, it's, give me a break. Um, you know, we didn't do it. We have, <laughs> we have dogs ourselves. We love, we love dogs. Um, but and it's not it, a real dog. It's an yeah, imaginary dog. Yeah. That yeah. Died. I, I, and <laughs> but this is a true, this is a true story. In the last, the last book I asked Doug. Can we put on the copyright page, no animals were killed, no animals were harmed in the writing of this book? <laughs> and he said, no, you can't do that. But so, you know, a lot of our readers' comments make a lot of sense. A lot of them, you just have to say, that's just, that's, that's just the gig, you know, comes with a the, with the gig. You wouldn't be ACDC if you didn't stick your tongue out on that. Very true. How's that for a, a line of wisdom? Yes. Anytime you're learning from ACDC, uh, uh, anyway. I don't even know a single ACDC song, to be honest. I just seen. You would recognize them. If you heard some of them, you would recognize them and go, that's a, that's a song. You probably even like some of them, you know? Well, I'm a Led Zeppelin fan, so they couldn't be that different. Uh, yeah. But. The D, my, uh, the Michelangelo. Yes, exactly. Genre. I was about to say the only difference is in the uh, degree of talent, perhaps. Um, but uh, Jim, it sounds like I could, I could, I could uh, shoot the fat with you all day. I hope so. Unfortunately, that radio time does not come cheap, and we have I to know. get really close to signing off. I only have one yep. more question, though, Lincoln. Uh, how do you divide the time that you write versus the time that you read? 
one of my problems mm-hmm. as a writer is uh, that I haven't read recently, and when I'm reading, I feel guilty that I'm not writing. Your thoughts? Do you mean so you're talking about reading for pleasure? You mean yes. Well, um, for you, it's work, but you know, for, yeah, for, for someone who wants to be a writer. Um, you know, I, I, uh, for somebody who wants to be a writer, I would say read all you can because, um, you should take as your, you should kind you should try and write the kind of book you would like to read. And that often, that often involves thinking about your favorite writers. I don't mean to imitate them or ache them, but you know, if you like that kind of stuff, Try and write a book in, in, in your own style that, that you would enjoy reading. So I would say read on, you know, read on, read on. But in my case, you know, my, my life goes between new new book publications like right now where there's a ton of stuff going on, and then the deadline where there's a flurry of activity going on, and then there's occasional downtime where I tend to catch up, you know for a week at a time maybe and try and get that reading in um but jim i will tell you it's very hard for me to read fiction right now because i i've edited it and i I write it myself and so i read it and i'm i'm the most nastiest critic and most you know easily personally get bored you can imagine just because i know where you're going here or i would have done that differently you know what comes to my mind so i I tend to be reading, trudging through things like Don Quixote or Don, you know, um, kind of Monte Cristo books that I can't criticize and that I should have read long, long ago. Um, that and the research I do, which I do in the evenings um, online, and that is that's a lot of fun. I don't consider that work. That's fun. Lincoln, uh, really have enjoyed speaking with both you and Doug, and congratulations on Dead Mountain. Uh, it looks like fantastic reading for our final weekend of the summer coming up here. I appreciate you so much being with us. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having us both. And um, to all your listeners, I hope you have a great uh, holiday weekend. And thank you for listening. How do we find out more about you? We know PrestonChild.com. Is there anything in addition to that you'd like to throw out or how to follow Yes, I would. Books? Yes, thank you. Very briefly, um, I have a line of books um, featuring the enigmologist Jeremy Logan, who, to my surprise, has garnered a real following. And you can learn more at my website, which is www.lincolnchildoneword.com. Fantastic. Lincoln, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jim. Take care. Have a great weekend, everyone. Take care. Bye now.